listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, Canada. How's it going? I wish I had my enthusiasm, but the thing that buoys my spirit is the bravery of the Ukrainian people and the leadership there in the face of this overwhelming, overwhelming assault by the Russians who continued to bombard cities last night. I know there are negotiations going on. What do you make of negotiations? Obviously, any negotiation is better than not having any. But let's be clear. The Russians are negotiating with the Ukrainians to end a crisis where their minister, Sergei Lavrov, their longtime foreign affairs minister, gave an interview where he said specifically that Russia is going to prosecute this war till the very end. And I tweeted that out. And I tweeted out, what I tweeted out was, this is theater. When you see that Russia says they're going to continue the Ukraine war till the end, I wrote, Russia has no intention to stop the war, according to Lavrov. That undermines the entire theater of their negotiations and and, and 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 a former member of parliament said, oh, Evan, that interpretation hinges on two words, the end, without context. He said from the same story, Lavrov said he had no doubt that a solution to the crisis in Ukraine would be found and that a new round of talks were about to start between Ukraine and, and, and Russian officials. Like, how do I interpret they're going to prosecute the war to the end when they're engaging in talks? And it is this level of naivety, and I'm, I'm stunned that anyone who can be elected can be this naive about Russia. As if I'm interpreting like a Wade. You should listen to the whole context. Here, here's what you don't do when you're dealing with an invader. You don't listen to their words. This is the naivete of some people who are trying to be complicit with this Russian invasion. Let's be clear about what side of history you ought to be on. Reality. As I wrote to this, I'm not even going to mention his name because I don't want to troll him. I said, no, this is not my interpretation. And the context of Sergei Lavrov's words. I'm not a stooge. I was born at night, but not last night. That is not how you interpret it. You know how you interpret what Russia says? By what they do. If Russia wasn't escalating the attacks on Kiev, a city of three million and indiscriminately bombing and killing civilians and apartment buildings... And according to the United Nations and the United States, using cluster bombs and thermobaric bombs, which are vacuum bombs that suck the oxygen out of the air and kill people. And they haven't invaded in the south. And the east and the north and dropping bombs and killing people. And as they are at the negotiating table, they are continually bombing 
escalating and invading a democratic country under the fiction, the lie, the ruse that they're there to denazify a country and, quote, demilitarize a country. This level of naivete plays into the hands of Vladimir Putin. I I don't even understand why you can't see what's before your eyes. I'm not arguing a point of view. Well, I interpret what Lavrov says and I interpret it. There's no end of crisis at the negotiating table when you're bombarding cities. Stop bombing, withdraw from a democratic country, and then let's talk. This is like I kidnap your family, I invade, I I, I break the door down in your house, and I'm trying to take over your house, I'm throwing firebombs at your family, killing your neighbors and family. And then I say, we should talk. I'm, I'm really interested in negotiating a settlement. And you say, really? Well, how about get out of my house, release my family, and stop killing everyone? Then we'll talk. Otherwise, it's called a war. Now, the Ukrainians have to talk. They have to. But do not trust this theater of the Russians. It is theater until their actions match their words. It is theater unless they stop the bombing. They're not interested in ending the war. They are interested in escalating the war. They're not interested in negotiating with the government. They're interested in decapitating the government. Now, the Western pressure is tremendous. Let's be clear here. Let's be clear. Russia wildly underestimated the speed... And the solidarity of first the Ukrainian people and their leadership, President Zelensky, and the West. For example, today, Canada made several key announcements. First of all, for the first time, Canada is going to supply lethal weapons, 4,500 M72 rocket launchers and 7,500 hand grenades. Here's Anita Anand making the announcement today, the defense minister. We intend to supply additional lethal aid to Ukraine, which includes up to 4,500 M72 rocket launchers and up to 7,500 hand grenades. It's good. They need more. But Christian Freeland Canada's done something out for it. Nobody's done this. Listen to this, what we've done. We have literally yanked Russia from favored nation status for as a trading partner. That means they are subject now, all trade with Russia, to brutal tariffs. Listen. This will bring the total number of people and entities sanctioned or in the process of being sanctioned by Canada since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea in 2014 to more than 1,000. Russia and Belarus will be subject to a tariff of 35% on their exports to Canada. So 35% tariff on Belarus and Russia. We've got sanctions uh, of more than 1,000 people. Is Canada stepping up? The Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who's speaking right now, um, spoke to President Zelensky. Now, Zelensky is remarkable. This morning, I, I, want, I, I want to say something about democracy. Kiev is being bombed right now. 
The Russians are bombing the capital, but the Ukrainian parliament met this morning. And then President Zelensky held a press conference and he pleaded for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Now, we've been discussing that on this program a lot. And I've discussed it with General Hillier and I've discussed it with Vice Admiral Mark Norman. NATO is not going to do a no-fly zone. The Russians need a no-fly zone. You understand that? I mean, the Ukrainians need it because the Russians have air superiority. They do. And it's deadly. But NATO will not, and I think it's the right call, sadly, because if you have a a no-fly zone, that means there's NATO jets in the air, and they got to shoot down Russian jets and helicopters, and if they do that, it's a hot war with Russia. So what should they do? They should be sending more weapons, including squadrons. There is a, the U.S. is ready to send a squad. Squadron, that's between 12 and you know, 20, 24 A-10s. A-10s are critical. They take out tanks. They could send three squadrons of that. That should happen. They're ready to go. Congress should give that the go-ahead. The West, if you are not going to have a no-fly zone, give the Ukrainians a shot. Give them more than just anti-tank weapons. They need some air power. So we're going to talk about that. We gotta, we're going to meet some people on the program today. A Canadian who's over there as a medic. A Canadian comedian who's left this country to help out on the front lines. But coming up next, uh, Scott Reed and Gary Keller are going to join me for Overhyped and Underplayed on the war. But also, the conservative leadership race is coming into focus. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program, everyone. It is time for our overhyped and underplay moment of the week. Overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Of course, Scott Reed, RCTV National News, a political commentator, former communications director for uh, Prime Minister. Paul Martin joins us, and we have a special guest today for a special segment. Why? Because we're not only going to talk about, obviously, Canada's actions on the war, but the Conservative Party of Canada has set out the rules to choose a new leader, and it looks like Jean Charest is going to jump in. So that is why we today have invited our special guest, Gary Keller, Conservative Strategist and Vice President at Strategy Corp, to join us. So Scott and Gary, welcome to the program. I'm going to start... Uh, I want to start with Ukraine because obviously the urgency um, and and Scott, again, more announcements today on immigration uh, announcements today on um, uh, lethal weapons from Canada. Um, Tell me your your sense of of Canada uh, and its response and its response and part of this remarkable in the last eight or nine days uh, as the as the the Western world and NATO alliance has pulled together. I, I think we've seen something we have never seen in, I don't know, generations. I agree. Um, So I think, first of all, the Western response has been pretty tightly coordinated, 
pretty effective and, you know, short of military intervention, it's been about as stern uh, and sturdy as you can possibly get. I really think that Canada, I think the government's had a good week. I think the government has looked like it's had its act together, that it's in uh, marching step with Western allies. And, I, you know, according to reports, you can even say that, you know, there's been important moments where Canada's had a hand in leading some of this. And I think in particular, Christian Freeland's had a good week. And in particular, her, her advocacy of cutting off the central bank of Russia, a move that had never been taken before, cutting off a central bank, severing their connection to the uh, international financial system. I think that caused real pain and it is causing real pain in Russia. And I think that we can take some, take some uh, real pride in that. So I think it's been a good week for the government. Um, I still think Russia is going to unleash all holy hell, frankly, on uh, Kev this weekend. And that's going to be an awful thing to watch. I think you're right that the West response has been remarkable, Gary. Um, I know there's more to do, but what is your sense of how Canada's response has been and, and what needs to be done? Yeah, having lived through some of this work as a former chief of staff to a foreign minister, uh, this coordination work, it takes a lot of uh, heavy lifting on all sides. It takes, uh, you know, a public service that is that is doing the heavy lifting. It takes political leadership. And so I agree with uh, Scott that, you know, I think the government's had a, a pretty good uh, week uh, on, on many fronts uh, and pushing on, on the central bank sanctions, on, uh, on SWIFT. Uh, and uh, and adding on sanctions, you know, I think it's fair to, to ask some questions about why it's taking uh, longer to amend immigration procedures for Ukrainians wishing to come here. You know, at the beginning of this, they were asking or demanding proof of vaccination status, and you know that raised some some uh, red flags. Uh, you know, the government has also been slow to uh, act on removing Putin's uh, TV propaganda station RT uh, from Canadian stations. You know, they, earlier today I saw the the regulation, which just simply requires the CRTC to convene a hearing on this, not actually pulling the plug. So, still a lot of work to do on that. But you know, I also think back to that. You know, the government that hasn't always had a perfect relation, uh, a perfect record on 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 Ukraine. Uh, you know, they've restored uh, sending imagery, satellite imagery to Ukraine, but they stopped doing that in 2016. Yeah, the radar side. Yeah, to provide, to, you know, providing Ukraine with satellite imagery to allow Ukraine to monitor Russian troop movements in Crimea and Donbass, and and they lifted sanctions on Lukashenko in Belarus in 2017. So, you know, um, they're doing a, 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 I think a pretty decent job this week, and they're they're going to get credit for it, and they should get credit for it. At the same time, they also haven't had a, a perfect track record in the past, and it would have been nice to see them some of that support, you know, especially back when Stefan Dion was foreign minister and was you know, trying to cozy up to Russia. Uh, and now he's still our ambassador to Germany and con- EU envoy. So still some work to do there. Yeah, Gary Keller, Scott Reed again, um, more lethal aid, tariffs of 35% on all Russian imports to Canada. So more, more today. Um, by the way, remarkable acts of heroism and and, and a renewed understanding of the price of democracy, I think, in general. And, and for both of you who have served in governments, uh, you, you know, there is no default to democracy. Democracies uh, demand sacrifice and work, and we're seeing that firsthand. Um, one element of democracy, which we should not take for granted, is, is leadership. And the Conservative Party of Canada has, has finally released their... Um, Rules of engagement in terms of, of leadership. So they're going to elect their new leader, Scott Reed, September 10th. Okay, 200,000 bucks to uh, drop in. And then there's another 100,000 that has to come as a deposit. That'll be uh, returnable. Membership applications are open until June 3rd. And then you can mail in to party members as late as July or early August. 
what does the rules tell you? And, and, and I guess we expect the former Quebec Premier Jean Charest to jump in. Well, I think a couple of things. First of all, that one hundred thousand dollar price tag is too steep. I'm out. Okay, so I just um, that was a big. That was. A, I think that was the purpose of it. Yeah, I think uh, it's clearly discriminatory. Uh, they didn't want me. And you're not going to get me. Uh, look, I I think obviously it appears clear that Sheree wants to run and will run now. Um, these rules, the setting of the date is what's capturing people's attention because they're saying, "Ooh, it's September. That's a little later." But the forces of Poliev are pushing for summer, and I think people are maybe uh, overhyping how significant that is. I still think that Poliev is in firm control of this because he's in firm control of the party because the party has become a thing that you know, is based on sort of grievance, populist politics. It wants to go that direction, right? And that's why it ran over top of O'Toole. Uh, that's why Polyev is out so far ahead. And when you look at the date that really matters, which is the cutoff, like if you're Sheree, you got 90 days. You got 90 days to purchase a new party. And that's what has to happen. You have to sell tens of thousands of memberships in the, say, 220-ish of the 338 ridings, making certain you've got those memberships distributed in the right places so that you can take over the point system that that works on. I mean, it's just, it's a daunting task. I And you're, and the goalposts will be moving because Polyev will be selling against you during the whole time. So I think we're going to see... Um, I think we're going to see Sheree in the race, um, but I don't think the Polyev's fundamental uh, poll position has been dented much. I think we'll also see Pat Brown, um, the, the mayor of Brampton and the, and the former conservative. I, Gary, what's your sense of this? Scott, Scott's contention, and it's a hard one to ignore, is that Pierre Polyev is the voice of the party. If you look at the past leaders, they ousted Aaron O'Toole when he tried to move to the center. So, so that looks wrong. You've got um, Andrew Shear, who's moved to the right. Maxime Bernier came within a whisker of winning that. He's on the on the right. And it seems like the party is moving in that direction. How does a guy like Jean Charest, who was a liberal premier, or even a guy like Pat Brown, who's going to try to be a progressive conservative, how do they win? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, and you're right. You know, Polyev has a good handle on where the caucus is at, and I think where a good chunk of the membership of the, of the current party is at. Now, you know, being able to sell some memberships will certainly uh, help any competitors come in the race, but it's a, as Scott said, it's a huge, steep task for the next 90 days here. Uh, some are questioning, too, why we have this long period between leadership cutoff and, and the actual vote. To me, that sounds like, you know, the, the last few experiences they've had in the two leadership races says they need more time to process these ballots. Right. Uh, um, and, and look, uh, Polyev has the upper hand, uh, but at the end of the day, it is still a point system, and 50 votes in Gaspé are as good as 5,000 votes in Red Deer. And, you know, Andrew Scheer won Quebec in 2017. That's right. He beat Maxime Bernier. And Aaron O'Toole beat Peter McKay in Quebec in 2020. So for Sheree to have at least a shot, He's got to win some of those those boroughs in Quebec and Atlantic Canada uh, outright and, and perform above expectations in Ontario and parts of the West. That's a tall order. Um, I, I don't know uh, if he's got the ability to do that. But you know what? More candidates, more credible candidates, the better. Um, and uh, certainly going to be interesting to see uh, where he targets his uh, someone, uh, someone said to me, Gary Keller and Scott Reed, the way to win memberships, there's labor unions, there's cultural communities, and they're social conservatives. And the question is, I'm looking at the, the, the second bucket. Who's going to sign up in the cultural communities? And, you know, that had been the Pat Brown strategy. And we'll find out what happens. Uh, Scott and Gary, um, what a time to live through. Uh, I really appreciate it. Gary, thanks for being our special guest today. Scott, you're Thank never you. overhyped. You're always underplayed, my friend. Always. 
underfed. We'll see you guys. <laughs> underfed. Yeah, I'm skinny, man. I'm so skinny now. You haven't seen me. God, he's, he's look at. He always has to talk about burnish his hotness. Oh, the U.S. ambassador to Canada's next. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is the Evan Solomon Show. As the Russian invasion enters day eight, local officials say that the strategic port city in the south of Ukraine is under uh, Russian control. That's look, they're making gains in the south. Um, it's Kyrson or Hearson. Big, big gain for the Russians. They're slow moving on Kiev. They're bombing Kiev or Kiev. And they're bombing Kharkiv, second largest city, and Mariupol in the south. But now that they've got Hirson, that's a big deal. Yes, I know they're negotiating today. But negotiations are meaningless if you focus on what they're doing. They're increasing the terror. There's a million people, a million people have fled the country. Yesterday on CTV's Power Play, I spoke to David Cohen, the U.S. ambassador to Canada. And I asked him the key question. President Zelensky of Ukraine is saying we need ammunition and we need a no-fly zone. We need NATO to control the skies to give us a chance of fighting on the ground. We're not, we don't want boots on the ground. What, we do need aircraft in the air. NATO has said no. That's a no-go zone. So I did ask the U.S. ambassador just to clarify. Is a no-fly zone... Supported by the U.S. or NATO, is it even on the table or is it forever off the table? So I, you know, I don't, I don't want to draw any lines in the sand here and say that um, a no-fly zone isn't going to happen. But as your coverage is made clear, the United States and Canada and the Allies have a have aligned in an unprecedented way to um, deploy an unprecedented series of sanctions, humanitarian assistance, weapons assistance in attempting to defend Ukraine and push back on the on this Russian aggression. Um, the one red line that Joe Biden articulated at the outset of this process, the one red line that Prime Minister Trudeau articulated, and the one red line that the entire ally community has articulated is that they are not going to engage in a troops-on-the-ground strategy in Ukraine. Defending NATO is a different question. And the president said last night um, that he would defend, he, the United States would defend every single inch of NATO territory if necessary to do so. Um, but that does not extend to putting troops on the ground in Ukraine. And frankly, enforcing a no-fly zone over Ukraine is essentially putting troops on the ground because the only way you enforce it is by putting airplanes in the sky that would take on Russian aircraft um, to enforce the no-fly zone. So I think everything is on the table to isolate Russia, to punish Russia, the Russian people, Vladimir Putin, his oligarch friends, to make them feel the pain of their actions, to cripple the Russian economy, to make Russia a pariah, 
and to use that assemblage of sanctions, which has never been deployed to this extent by this many countries in the world, to try and push him back from his illegal, aggressive, and, and deplorable conduct by invading Ukraine. Uh, Ambassador Cohen, uh, U.S. Ambassador to Canada. Um, Article 5 is the core tenet of the NATO agreement. An attack on one is an attack on all. But in the world of hybrid warfare, what is an attack? Would the U.S. interpret a cyber attack on a NATO country from Russia? Would that be considered an act of war? I feel like I'm in good company since the media tried to get Joe Biden to, to bite on that question a week or so ago. Um, he declined, and I think I'm going to decline. Um, I think we'll know an attack when we see one. Um, and I, I do think that the Joe Biden approach has been to um, apply measured sanctions based upon the extent of, um, of the Russian activity. And people may have been upset when, they, when those sanctions started, for example, with just covering a couple of territories that Vladimir Putin had moved in on. But as the Russian, um, as the Russian aggression grew, the sanctions were unleashed. And I don't think anyone today mm. would say that the United States, Canada, or our allies is holding back from unleashing a full suite of sanctions designed to make Russia feel the pain of their deplorable and illegal actions. The uh, U.S. today um, confirmed that um, cluster munitions and vacuum bombs banned under the Geneva Convention have been used by Russia. I know the U.S. has been sending uh, Stinger anti-aircraft weaponry and Javelin anti-tank weapons to Ukraine. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, but the Russians have a goal here. It's to decapitate the, the government and kill Zelensky, uh, as you know. Uh, he's in Kyiv. How would the U.S. respond if the Russians killed the Ukrainian President Zelensky? So I, I don't want to respond to it. I respect you and I respect the questions you're asking, but I don't want to respond to a series of hypothetical questions about if this happens, how would the United States respond? I mean, I will, I will say, I, when you listen to the State of the Union address last night, when you listen to the, even that and at the beginning of this segment, I couldn't be prouder and more satisfied of the fact that Joe Biden is the president of the United States and is leading the charge with the democracies in the world in building a coalition and making sure everyone is on the same page. He has done this with humility, allowing others to lead at times so that everyone has ownership over this approach. And for any activity by Russia, that ratchets up their Ill illegal, inhumane violations of human rights and international law, there will be reciprocal ramping up of sanctions and activities against Russia designed to injure the Russian economy, and again, specifically designed to get at Vladimir Putin and his oligarch friends. That is the U.S. ambassador to Canada, David Cohen. He's not dodging, let me just say. 
They cannot say, well, if the Russians assassinate Zelensky, here's what we'll do. I have to ask because then what? They can't do, they won't do, they can, but they won't do a no-fly zone. But time matters. The Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people are showing remarkable resolve and bravery. But they are facing an overwhelming military might of Russia. In Belarus, as a Russian client state. And they need weapons and ammunition, anti-tank weapons, rockets. And they need an Air Force. And if the Russians take Kiev, the capital, and they're on their way, if the Russians in the south use their navy to cross the Black Sea towards Odessa, and they will, it's a major, major loss for the Ukrainians. The problem for Russia is they keep, A, underestimating the West, They've got internal issues, and that's why Putin is cracking down on all the media there. And it is going to be now bloody to hold on to anything. The Ukrainians are not quiescent. They are fighting back. It's remarkable. One guy I spoke to recently, just late last night, is the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Andrei Shevchenko. He's in a bomb shelter in Kiev. He's not leaving. He's also a military reservist. He could be called up today, but I want to play you what it's like for him. It's late at night. He's in a bomb shelter. His wife is a newscaster. She's broadcasting. He's under attack, but he wants to communicate to you. So I'm going to play you this conversation because it it matters to see and listen to how matter of fact he is about, I'm going to be called up and I'm going to be on the front lines. Why? Because the front line is his city the capital of Ukraine. So that's next. You don't want to miss this. Extraordinary moments of courage. Next. Sorting through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the program. Every day there seems to be another act of bravery. Every day in Ukraine, whether it's the president or whether it's a volunteer. We'll speak to a Canadian who's volunteered on the front lines over there in a minute. But the former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Andrei Shevchenko, is in Kiev. Kiev's being bombed right now. And we called him, and he's in a bunker. And I asked him to give me a sense of the ground in Kiev right now. So I, I just want you to picture it. It's night. The Russians are bombing. They've got the major part of their army coming to encircle your city. Civilians are dying. They want to decapitate the government, so you're a target. And I asked him, the Russians will escalate. There's a 65-kilometer-long convoy headed your way of Russian military equipment and personnel. How soon do you think... Sir, former Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Andrei Shevchenko, the attack's going to happen. 
Well, I think it was uh, it was a constant escalation uh, without much rest for it has been uh, that escalation without much rest for the last seven days, uh, and. Um, key right now is a fortress. Uh, as you know, our armed forces have given a very impressive fight to the Russian invaders. They feel very confident on land. Uh, many civilians have uh, taken arms and joined the armed forces and the forces of territorial defense. So that explains uh, why every Ukrainian city and village has become a fortress and every street becomes uh, a battlefield and hell for, for the Russians who choose to, to come here. So what I can see around Evan, it's extraordinary courage, a lot of self-sacrifice. There is a lot of anger and fury, of course, there is a lot of tragedy, but also there is a lot of optimism and a lot of enthusiasm. First of all, the courage is extraordinary. Mr. Shevchenko, it is extraordinary, and the world is watching the Ukrainian courage uh, under this onslaught. And, and I will say it is remarkable uh, from President Zelensky right down to, as you say, the average Ukrainian who are picking up arms. What does Ukraine need right now in terms of help immediately? What is the urgent request? We ask three things, weapons, money and sanctions. We need uh, money to save the Ukrainian economy. We do need sanctions to destroy the Russian economy. And we badly need weapons just to physically survive. That's what we need right now to, um, to protect our land, to protect our uh, armed forces, and also to protect civilians. So that's why every weapon which enters our country right now is priceless. That's why it's so important. And um, one more thing, okay. uh, we... Go ahead, Evan. No, 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 you go. Go ahead. What else? <clears throat> and uh, as uh, as I mentioned, we do feel quite confident on, on land, on the ground. Uh, part of that is maybe because of this extraordinary training that we received from the Canadian trainers under Operation Unifier. So all of that helped more than 30,000 of Ukrainian servicemen and servicewomen to, uh, to, uh, to protect their, their lives. Uh, but also we can see that the Russian capabilities in disguise, that is something which really kills us. And the Russians have changed their tactics uh, and they have started deliberately targeting civilian objects. So that's what is the most, uh, the most the dangerous part of the situation. Okay, that, that's exactly where I was headed, because you know there have been calls for a no-fly zone. Right here in Canada, the former chief of the defense staff, retired Major General Hillier on this program last night, said NATO must have a no-fly zone. The Ukrainians and they have asked for a no-fly zone. NATO has said no. We are not going to do a, a no-fly zone that would escalate this war with the Russians. Um, is there still a need? Would you still call for a, a NATO-enforced no fly zone over your country? Yes, and I'll explain why. War is obviously a terrible thing, but there are international laws that actually set up rules of engagement. The Russians don't care about that at all. They use cluster bombs to attack apartment blocks in Kharkiv, just like you showed on your program. They use Ukrainian flags to mask their tanks. They deliberately target civilian infrastructure. Uh, they captured Chernobyl nuclear, nuclear plant. Uh, in Kyiv, they hijacked ambulance vehicles to sneak into downtown. Their losses, as of the moment, are close to 6,000, both lethal and non-lethal. But we cannot even convince the Russians to take back the bodies of their soldiers. So I'm just giving all those exa examples to explain that uh, they do behave like barbarians with no dignity. It's, a, it's pure evil, which right now 
is a direct threat to Ukrainian civilians. And if we saw no-fly zone imposed in Libya or in Syria, I see no reasons why we cannot enforce that in Ukraine. We should, we should consider that option, and that would help us to protect civilian lives. Sir, sir just last question as that debate continues. Um, are, do you, is your family safe? Are those around you? What, what is happening there? Um, I think a lot of people on a personal note want to know, you know, what happens with you during the day? What are you going to do? What is your family doing? Are they going to try to leave or are they going to fight? Well, uh, I'm a reserve officer, so uh, I expect uh, a direct order to join the uh, the combat uh, any moment or any uh, any hour. My wife is a news presenter, just like you, Evan. So just uh, 20 minutes ago, she was she was on air uh, broadcasting news from here, from downtown Kiev. And we know that this is the time when each of us has to do his or her own share, uh, and it's a contribution into this into this battle that uh, that uh, we have. And I'm absolutely sure that we'll get through this and we do need your help we we're not alone but we feel lonely but we know how this is going to end we shall overcome okay yeah former ukrainian ambassador to canada andrei shevchenko sir extraordinary that you're broadcasting now for, and, and talking to us from kiev stay safe uh, i know we'll speak again thank you so much for your words and your extraordinary um, courage in the face of this thank you sir thank you evan I don't know what to say when, you know, he's a reservist, but he, you know, he's a former ambassador. He's about to fight on the front lines alongside everyone else. Andrei Shevchenko. It's extraordinary. Now, Anthony Walker is going to join us next. Now, who is Anthony Walker? Turns out I met Anthony Walker during the trucker protest. It's a pretty amazing thing. Anthony is a comedian. Or is he? He's, this is is amazing. He's just flown to to Ukraine to act as a medic. And he's got some medical training and some weapons training, but he was a comedian when I met him. And he bumped into me in the, in the, uh, the protest here in Ottawa. He was kind of a subversive comic. And my colleague Glenn McGregor and I were being harassed. We were chased back to our bureau at one point. You probably saw Glenn McGregor's hit, the, the sort of famous hit that he did. I did one and then Glenn did and he posted his. And Well, Anthony was there. And now he said, you know what? There's a war in Ukraine. I'm going to help. And he's there now. So we've reached Anthony. 5,000 kilometers from home. He plans to join the Legion of Foreign Fighters in Ukraine. He's a medic. He's 29. He's a father of three. And he's on the front lines and he joins us next. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. We are trying to reach Anthony Walker. He's a Canadian. He's a father of three. He just flew to Ukraine. He's uh, about to join the um, legion there, the foreign legion, essentially. 
and fight, but he's a medic as well, and he's providing medical help. He's, he told us, call me twice. If I don't pick up, I'm helping someone. That's the war. He's on the front lines. So we will try to reach Anthony. This is a war zone. Um, in the meantime, I want to hear from you. I'm getting a lot of texts. Do you think Canada should be doing more? The West sending jets, military jets, a no-fly zone. Are you concerned that this could escalate into a third world war? one 855 1010 1-855-633-1010 or 7-1010. Today, President Zelensky of Russia, of, of Ukraine said we need a no-fly zone. I know there are talks with Russia going on, but why would you trust them when the Russians continually... I mean, why would you trust them? They're bombing, they're escalating, they're invading. Vladimir Putin had a talk for 90 minutes with the um, president of France, Macron, and nothing happened. He doesn't care. The West is not going to put boots on the ground or planes in the air. But we will funnel in weapons. It does not mean the West is weak. The West has done more in the last seven days than we ever thought. But you can call me. I just want your thoughts on this. People are worried. 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Erwin, go ahead. And by the way, if you just want to call to, to express your anxiety, I'm okay with that. Um... Erwin, what's your what's your take on the situation? I appreciate your call. I don't know if we got Erwin. Erwin, I'll give you one last shot. Erwin, are you there? Okay, go for it. Hello? Erwin, you're on the air, buddy. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, we can't help out more, but there's consequences. We can't do a no-fly zone like they had in Iraq for the Kurds. Uh Sadly, there's little we could do for the uh, Ukrainians. They're going to lose. Uh, the big threat is that the Russians could easily just say we lost 30 nuclear weapons and uh, chemical weapons and biological weapons, and that would terrify the world. But I would add that uh, I wish we did the same thing. What we're doing for Ukraine, I wish we did for, to help the Uyghur people. It's very sad that we were silent about going to the Olympic Games but not helping them out, and now uh, yeah. we're just affecting the Ukrainians. I appreciate the call. You, listen, there is no shortage of tragedies, and and I appreciate that. The Uyghurs, by the way, the minority being, uh, many argue that there's a genocide against them in China. Um, Erwin, I appreciate the call. Hi, Evan. If the president of France talks to Putin and Putin sends worse is yet to come, why is anyone wasting time on peace talks, says Phil? We have to talk. Zelensky said to Putin, Good Lord, what do you want? He said this morning, leave our land. If you don't want to leave now, sit down with me at the negotiating table, but not from 30 meters away, like with Macron and Schultz, the German uh, chancellor. Sit down with me and talk. What are you afraid of? We're no threat to anyone, said Zelensky today. Today. This guy's remarkable. Uh, Eddie, what's up? Eddie? Yes, how are you? Pretty good, man. What's your take? Well, I just find that the West really is not doing enough. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric going on, a lot of sanctions, which really um, Putin looks at it and says, just shrugs his shoulders. I think he has to be threatened in a way that um, 
it's just not he's that he's just not accustomed to, and that is with believe it or not, and this may sound harsh, but boots on the ground, and um, we just have to go in there and take him out once and for all. He's a threat to the world. But how, how do you take him out with nuclear? I'm, I appreciate the call. You know, it's easy to say an all-out war with Russia, but then, folks, this is a nuclear power. Uh, this is a guy who is talking about his nuclear weapons, who has declared that the next world war will be a nuclear war, who has put his nuclear forces on high alert. Uh, if you're NATO, you don't just go in there and try to, quote, take them out. Uh, and, and I, uh, this is, you've got to explore lots of options before you declare a world war against a nuclear power. Now, I've got a couple texts here. Evan, it's very stupid for Canadians and countries to give arms to inexperienced people. All that will do is get Ukrainians killed. Think about it. No matter what I give them, the Russians are too strong. No. No, that's not true. You, democracies have to support other democracies. Don't give up on the Ukrainians. They are heroically fighting the Russians. Don't give up before the fight. They're fighting. They deserve our support. Evans, you should consider this. All munitions and deadly weapons being sent to Ukraine will fall in the hands of Russia in the event that they take over. Has that been accounted for? Of course, that's possible. Certainly happened in Afghanistan. But the Ukrainians are trying to defend their homeland of 40 million people and a democratically elected government. They need weapons. If, if, if Canada was invaded, would you like the argument to be, well, we better not arm the Canadians because if they lose, all this weapons will be in the hands of the invader. Robert, what's up? Uh, Robert? Yes. Evan. What's your take on this? Evan, great show, by the way. Thanks, man. Um, I got two points, Evan. One, if, you know, Putin's going to just keep on going. He's just going to be saying um, nuclear weapons, I'm going to Moldova. Nuclear weapons, I'm going to Poland. That's my first point. The second point is, why couldn't non-NATO countries supply the no-fly zone? Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, Mark Norman, the uh, former vice chief of the defense staff, floated that to me last night on power play, saying, what about China and India? They have air forces. Can I just tell you, in the United Nations vote last night, there was a United Nations Mm -hmm. vote last night, right? 141 countries voted to get Russia out of Ukraine. Five countries voted against it. Russia, Belarus... North Korea, Syria, and Eritrea, but over 35 other countries abstained. Who abstained? China and India. So what other countries right. are going to send their air force? So, so let's, let's talk about Israel. Let's talk about India. Let's talk about those other democracies where a nuclear confrontation is not a situation. They could provide air support. You know, we're talking about Asian countries. Uh, they should be stepping up. Democracies out there somewhere. Yeah, listen, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very fair point, and I appreciate the call. I guess the question is, geography creates urgency. Geography creates urgency, as you know. Once you're in a war, it's hard to get out. We know that from Afghanistan. We know that from Iraq. We know that from Libya. We know that. And this is the European front, and this is why the Europeans have led the fight. But you're, you're raising powerful points, and I appreciate it, um, because it is a globalist situation. Um, We've got Robert. Robert, what's up? Maybe we don't. Uh, Do we have Robert? 
Evan, I think we're doing our part. We should not complain about fuel costs. I consider it my contribution. We cannot turn this into World War th- this World War Three into a nuclear World War Three. We are at war. Ken says to me, Ken's got a, a smart comment. Evan, this is what's called a wicked problem. And he's right. The world is being held against a wall with nukes at our throat by one man. The question is, will he use them? I think he will be assassinated by his inner circle. They are losing everything they built over the last 30 years. Yeah, this notion that he's going to be taken out by his inner circle, uh, Ken, I don't know if, if that's true or not. And in the military, as you know, they say hope is not a strategy. And you can hope, but that is not a strategy. Uh, the strategy is to make this so outrageous and maybe to force the people of Russia to say, stop it. But Vladimir Putin, knowing his past, as you know, is not going to back down. He's in a corner. Now, the guy I'm going to bring on next is Major General uh, Dennis Thompson. He's a retired Major General, 39 years in the Canadian Army. He, of course, was in Kandahar, and he was in the command of NATO's task force in in Kandahar and Canada's Special Operation Forces. He knows war. He's been to war. And he's going to analyze this next. We'll bring in that voice as well to give you some perspective. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. A lot of you are texting me and saying there's nothing we can do. There's no way to stop Russia. They will overrun Ukraine. Well, the Ukrainians are putting up on day eight an extraordinary fight. Today, the defense minister, Anita Anand, announced Canada sending more weapons to Ukraine. Listen. We intend to supply additional lethal aid to Ukraine, which includes up to 4,500 M72 rocket launchers and up to... 7,500 hand grenades. The Ukrainian member of parliament, Lesya Vaslenko, said the country needs more, though. Russian, they need protection from missiles. They need protection from Russia's air bombardment. Right now, uh, Ukraine has immediate needs, and the immediate need is to have a no-fly zone over Ukraine, uh, over our big cities, which are densely populated. But as we know, and we spoke to the American ambassador to Canada, David Cohen, that's not going to happen. So now what? Uh, Let let me bring in retired Major General Dennis Thompson, 39 years in the Canadian Army, multiple operations he was deployed on, commanded the NATO task force in Kandahar and Canada's special operation forces. He knows battle. Uh, First of all, thanks for your service, uh, General Thompson. Always a pleasure. Um, What do you what do you make of this request for a no fly zone and NATO saying no, that is the the. Uh, the gateway to a hot world war with Russia. Well, I agree, agree entirely with what NATO's assessment is. A no-fly zone is impractical for a number of reasons, but uh, principally it's a political standpoint, because if you want to enforce a no-fly zone, it means you have to act offensively. And from a military standpoint, it's also quite problematic. The Russian ground forces that are on that are inside Ukraine right now are operating under an air defense envelope, that's probably provided by one of the best systems in the world, and that's this uh, so-called S-400 that you may have heard about. It has a range of 400 kilometers, and it can engage multiple targets. 
So if you want to impose a no-fly zone, it means that you have to take out Russian air defenses. And to do that, you have to act in an offensive manner, and you basically, you're going to war with Russia. And I don't think that's in the cards from a political standpoint. And it would be very costly from a military, uh, uh, well, to, to military air forces that would have to impose it. Yeah, I, I want people to understand, when General Thompson, when you say the Russian S-400, folks, just picture this. It is a mobile missile system, okay, that can literally take out, um, um, as you say, air jets and other things from hundreds of kilometers away. It is a deadly system. You are in a hot war with Russia. Exactly. And some people might, and I'm not an Air Force officer, might try out the fact that you could get stealth fighters in there, certainly the F-35, but you will only get so far inside of the, the radar envelope before you are detected. Stealth doesn't mean invisible. It just means that your range of detection is greatly reduced, and you will eventually be picked up and, and taken out. Uh, additionally, the S-400 is capable of knocking down ballistic missiles. So if you're if your uh, intention to protect you, to protect Ukrainian forces is to fire your own ballistic missiles, they too can be knocked down right. by this system. By the way, an F-35 stealth technology, uh, it crashed in the ocean off a carrier. They rescued it just recently. Just so you know, they're not perfect. Um, as you know, General Thompson, what do they need then? If they're not going to do that, sir, what do you give the Ukrainians to have a fighting chance to, to, to stop, if that's possible, the Russians? Well, um, first of all, I'm not certain they need to stop the Russians. Uh, this is very much a case of if you break it, you own it. And the Russians are in the process of breaking it, and they're going to own a, a very big insurgency problem. And the typical math used in insurgency, certainly the math we employed in Afghanistan, is that you need 20 security force personnel for every 1,000 people in the population. So for a country the size of Ukraine, let's say 40 million for the sake of argument, that's 800,000 security force personnel. I believe the Russians' intentions were to put their own man in, in charge of the country and then co-opt the Ukrainian security forces so that they would be part of that 800,000 number, much like we did in terms of our capacity building in both Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, which, as you know, have been, at least in one case, an abysmal failure. They have not put 800,000 people into this country, or soldiers into the country. They've got 150,000, and they're a far cry from co-opting that Ukrainian uh, military or security force to work on their behalf. So I, I think uh, it's going to degenerate into a, uh, unfortunately, into an ugly insurgency, and, and Russia isn't going to come out on top, sadly. Well, not sadly, thankfully, but it's going to cost an awful lot of lives. Sadly, for the people of Ukraine, because, as you say, it's blood. Um, they have made, it, in my view, and, and, and I'm speaking to retired Major General Dennis Thompson, but, but, sir, they have made a fundamental error, I think, an assumption about Ukraine, and Kiev particularly, and I would call it the Kabul error. They assumed that Kiev would fall the way Kabul fell to the Taliban, that they would arrive— uh, the government would melt away, that Zelensky, who they underestimated, would, would would fail in his moment of crisis, that the Ukrainians would accept a puppet regime, and they would kind of do what the Taliban did in the end. This was a fundamental, colossal error. That This is not Crimea, this is not Georgia, and this is certainly not Kabul. 
No, you're 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 absolutely right, Evan. This is not uh, not Kabul, although you might look at it as being Kabul in the reverse. Um, and I don't mean to uh, come across like a military military historian, but you might recall that Napoleon said the moral is to the physical as three is to one, and Ukrainian morale is definitely at its highest, while Russian morale apparently is at a low ebb. Right. So, just from a motivation standpoint. They're in a completely different space than uh, than the Afghan army was in Kabul. Uh, they're they're more like if you know it's a terrible comparison to make, but their morale is more like the Taliban's morale. It's very high, and it's going to be extremely difficult to break it. Well, what and do you I do though? So what's the out? Like Putin's got a safe face. Putin can escalate. Putin's not going anywhere. I know there's these sham talks. You hope they work. They're not going to because they're escalating the attack. So then what, sir? What, what if you're We're advising? In- what do you do? It's the long game. We are in the long game, and we're going to have to accept the fact that this is a year or two-year-long process until Russia realizes and the Russian people realize that this project that Putin has undertaken is not sustainable. Uh, but it isn't going to happen, as you put, point out, overnight, and sanctions are going to take an awful long time to bite to, uh, to have the effect that, that Western leaders desire. And we're not there yet. And it, and it will be some time, and unfortunately... It's going. The price is going to be paid by the Ukrainian population. Could the the fear is Putin could escalate that that this is a prelude to a nuclear war, a, a much wider war in Europe? What's your sense, sir? I'd hate to think that that's the case. Uh, I truly do. Obviously, nobody wants a nuclear war, but I can't get inside of uh, Putin's head. This is a man who is clearly. He's believing his own press. He lives in total isolation. You've seen those news conferences where he's at least 20 feet from anybody in the room. They all have to pass through a decontamination tunnel to get to him. He's being spoon-fed his information, and he's being told what he wants to hear, like most uh, megalomaniacs are. And so that does concern me. I don't know what his out is unless, uh, you know, un- unless he is physically removed by those around him, and that's not, again, likely to happen until the pressure is really ratcheted up. What, what, sir, we, we have, let's be candid, our military has been denuded and under, underinvested for a long time. What can and should Canada do now, in your estimation, General Thompson? Well, we need to really look hard at the Baltics. We have a battle group, or what's called an enhanced forward presence battle group, that's being reinforced at this moment in time uh, in the Baltics, and we need to make sure that that organization is sustainable militarily and that's going to require reinforcement not just from canada but i would suggest from other nato allies and all three of those baltic states will be will be on putin's uh, list uh, that's if he can get himself unstuck from uh, ukraine and that's unlikely so in the short term it's to focus on uh, providing the military assistance that's already been announced towards ukraine and on plussing up the enhanced forward presence battle group in Latvia. And in the longer term, yeah, we do need to start thinking hey. seriously like the Germans have and get our spending up to 2% of GDP. 2% of GDP. Hey, thanks for your service. Your perspective always unbelievably important. Major General Dennis Thompson, sir, thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break. And again, we're going to try to reach a Canadian on the front lines next. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. We continue to try to reach Anthony Walker, 29-year-old comedian, 
father of three from Port Hope. He's now working as a medic at the border of Poland and, and Ukraine. He's signed up to fight. And he's uh, on the front lines working. So uh, hang in there. We're going to try to reach him. I'm going to take some texts and calls, though. Uh, partly what I want to do is I want to take texts and calls in the conservative leadership race. At one 855 one or 71010-1010. And my question is, you can tell me who you'd like to see re- lead the party. There's only one contestant so far, and that is uh, Pierre Polyevre. Jean Charest, Pat Brown, they all may jump in. Tasha Carradine, regular on this program, she may go in. The rules were released yesterday. You have until April 19th to send your application and $200,000, and then you got to get another $100,000 deposit, which you'll get back after the contest is over. So it's basically three hundred grand. And applications are open until the the 3rd of June. You can mail things in until basically early August. And then September 10th, they're going to have the vote, and it will be a preferential ballot. Already you've got Pierre Polyevre saying things like he's going to get rid of the carbon tax, which is any price on carbon, which is something that Aaron O'Toole had put on. He's a center-right populist. Jean Charest would be a center-left, progressive conservative. He used to be the liberal premier of Quebec. By the way, the liberal party in Quebec is not a connected to the federal liberal party because he was also a minister in, in Brian Mulroney's government. He comes with baggage. And, and then well, what about Patrick Brown? one 1010 or seven ten ten. I'm interested to see who you'd like to see lead, but what kind of conservative party do you want? Do you want a progressive party? Do you want a populist party? one 1010 or 71010. How important is it? You want a party that is got a plan on climate or not? Do you want a party that is very intrigued with social conservative issues? I think Leslie Lewis as the leading social conservative candidate will join how will a conservative party win is it a conservative party that is the stephen harper party i haven't won an election and bruce anderson the pollster was was tweeting about this conservatives have not won an election in a decade haven't won an election stephen harper lost andrew Scheer lost Aaron O'Toole lost. Bruce, what's up? Hey, Evan, thanks for having me on the show. I think Caroline Mulroney. We're, we're in a world where everybody looks at the past, and, uh, you know, with Justin Trudeau and Pierre Trudeau, I think Mulroney. Caroline Mulroney would be a great candidate. I well, why do you uh, think she would be? I, and that's intriguing. She, by the way, is a minister in the uh, Doug Ford government right now. Uh, what would make her a good conservative leader, and what kind of party would she run? Uh, well, like I say, I've, I've, I've watched her over the years of being in the Conservative Party, and uh, every time she's, she's always a motivated person. And I, I look at her background being, uh, being the daughter of the Maroney family. I, I think she'd be a great candidate. I, I believe she's a lawyer, too. She is a lawyer. Um, 
she is 100%. Um, a lawyer, she's a mom, she's a politician, um, she's the Minister of Transport right now. Um, and yes, she is the daughter of Brian Mulroney. Uh, thanks for the call. It's interesting that you say that um, because Aaron O'Toole literally brought her father out and said, I would like to make this the party back toward the old coalition of Brian Mulroney. I'm going to move the center back. And he got knifed in the front and knifed in the back. So the idea that the Mulroney era, which is what Jean Charest also on, is the way to go, was literally tried by Aaron O'Toole in the election when he brought Mulroney back. Mulroney was in, essentially, hidden away in the Harper years. I didn't want him. So it's interesting that you say that, and it's a, it certainly is a possibility. Terry, what's up? Hey, I would love to Jody Wilson-Raybull run. Uh, but she was a... Li- I mean, I've spoken to her, just to be clear... She's a liberal. She, 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 she doesn't like Justin Trudeau, as you know, but she's a liberal. Yes, I know that. But, like, um, uh, I think it, it, it would smack um, uh, Trudeau straight in the face. Yeah, I appreciate the call. Can I just say something to that? And that, that's, that's um, Terry, conservatives never like anyone more than, than, than a, someone, a, a liberal who turns on Justin Trudeau. Uh, and that's why they love Jody Wilson-Raybould. But Jody Wilson-Raybould has no conservative credentials. She was the former justice minister for Justin Trudeau. She does not like Justin Trudeau. I've asked her, are you still a liberal? And she says, yeah. So, you know, uh, trolling Justin Trudeau does not a conservative party make. Um, Gary, what's up? Um, I uh, personally favor uh, Pierre Polyevre as a potential leader for the Conservative Party. Um, I think he uh, he has really shown his uh, um, parliamentary performance over a period of many years. Um, he was a parliamentarian even at the time of the last uh, couple of leadership races, which he declined to participate in. I think that over the years he's been an extremely effective critic of the Liberals, and I think that he fuses um, uh, fiscal conservatism with a middle-of-the-road approach to social issues. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. I appreciate it. He's certainly the front-runner. Um, he was elected at the age of 25. age of 25, he was first elected, and... So he's been a long, this is basically the only job he's had. Um, you're right. He, on, on some issues, he's, uh, I think he's pro-choice. Uh, he has become much more of a, of a right-wing populist. He was a minister. Uh, he's a very effective parliamentarian. Uh, the question is, is he a broad enough tent or is he polarizing? He has a very flinty um, political side, which can be very good. Remember, in Canada, you don't need to win 100% to win power. You need to win 33%, 35%. And conservatives have a bedrock of 30. Uh, he's certainly the front runner. Uh, Steve, what's up? Hey, Evan. Uh, I've always been saying that if the conservatives don't uh, get a, uh, a woman in their party to, uh, to lead them, it's, uh, it's a no-go, as, as you've seen in the last 10 years. They lost Rona Barrett. They lost the other lady. I can't remember. Sort of a chunkier kind of lady. She was a, she was a fantastic person, it seems to me. And now, after uh, Sheer and after uh, O'Toole, they're aimless. So if they don't elect a woman, I say Jean Charest because of the Quebec connection. He's a middle 
centrist conservative, and, and he's got the experience. What do you think? Um, okay. Uh, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Um, Ronna Ambrose was very popular, uh, former minister. She was the interim leader, she decided, and has declined a number of requests to run. Uh, incredible uh, mind and, and proved to be an incredible leader. Um, yeah, look, uh, I'm not going to comment on, on whether, whether they need, quote, a woman or a man. They, the challenges aren't that surface. Um, they need a coalition to stitch. They can't keep overwinning in the West, right? You, you can't just win Alberta and Saskatchewan and win. You got to win Ontario. You got to win the suburbs. You've got to win over women in the suburbs if you look at actually the, uh, the math of it. And they've got to make inroads in Quebec. Now, Stephen Harper managed the trick of winning the West, B.C., and Ontario, so he, he didn't need to go through Quebec because of the orange wave there. But others do. And we'll see what happens. Whether it's Pat Brown or Leslin Lewis or Jean Charest or Pierre Polyevre. We'll find out. Maybe Caroline Mumrin. All right. Uh, let's, should we all take a break from politics and bring back our best friend, uh, Riskin? And I want to talk about the dirtiest thing in your kitchen. This is my pet peeve. This is my pet peeve wiping the counter with the kids. We're taking a break from politics and we're going to get pet peeves in the kitchen. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back. Let's take a break from the political scene as we like to do at the end of our show. And we are going to do pet peeves. And I say this because we are going to talk about pets and peeves today. Cloning our pets. So Puddle, my beautiful half lab, half German Shepherd. Or sorry, half St. Bernard, not German Shepherd. Uh, Puddle, who's 11. Could I clone Puds or my cat, Oliver? And then my pet peeve about my kids wiping the counters with the, I can't swear, the bloody sponge. Now, to talk about this, we have our CTV science and technology specialist, Dan Riskin, who, because we've now decided, uh, and he's agreed generously to come on every week, we are trying to get a new name for this segment. So you can text me a name for Dan Riskin's science and cool stuff um, segment at 71010. But uh, I'm going to welcome Dan. We have, here's our working title. Are you ready? Yeah. No risk and no reward. I like it, but you that's the one time you do have risk in. So it feels like it should be risk and reward, and all the other segments oh, should be yeah. called no risk and no reward. Yes, that's true. We should say risk and reward, but that yeah. doesn't work as well. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's a work in progress. That's I'm right. sure we you, can't say no the, riskin. We, we were thinking if you don't have riskin, you don't get the reward. So we have riskin, but you're saying, well, of course we have riskin, so we can't call it say no riskin, no reward. Right. If you call it the no riskin segment, then people will be like, well, that's the one. Yeah, I, I I like where you're going with it, but I think we need to fine tune it a little bit. How about high risk and high reward, and then now people you're will think you're stoned? Right. Exactly. Well, you know what? That might work. Maybe <laughs> I will be stoned. Maybe high we'll just see how that goes. <laughs> Okay, (laughs) this is already there. Maybe we're already there. This is why we workshop this stuff. We don't just go for it. We don't just, you know, this is this is this is science. Science builds on failure. Don't you know that you're a scientist? Sure, sure. We're disproving the hypothesis that that was a good title. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly right. Okay. um, Okay. Okay. So 
here's the drill on my house. You tell me your house. Um, Whoever does the cooking, Mm. the other person does the cleaning, right? You don't cook and clean after dinner. But one of my kids uh, is better at the dishes. I'm a sort of a dish guy. I like to do the dishes. But my daughter would like to do... My son is like all about the counters. He loves to work the counters. But I do not like when he uses... The the rag, you know, the dish rag or a sponge on the counters. I'm like, it's disgusting. Right. And my yeah. family's always like, you're so anal about this. Am I? Well, you 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 may rightly be anal about it. So there's a new study just looking at how sponges are microbe paradises. And they estimate that a cubic centimeter of that yellow sponge in your kitchen, a cubic centimeter, can have... So many bacteria in it, it's seven times the human population of our planet. 54 billion bacteria per cubic centimeter. And oh, so and, and so this this latest study is trying to figure out why it's so good at at helping the bacteria thrive. And and what they conclude is, well, okay, yeah, it's moist. And yeah, it's also got all these holes so oxygen can get all through it. So it's not, you know, it stays wet, but it also gets lots of oxygen. And then, you know, in addition to that, there's food that gets on there. So that's something for it to feed on. But the thing that makes sponges special is all those little compartments where you can get an assortment of bacteria, like a little, you know, species A and B and C. But then in the next one over, it's D, E, and B again. And then the other one is C, L, and A. And because there are different assortments in these different little pockets, they don't all have to compete with each other all the time. And so you get more diversity. Sometimes a, a, a strain of bacteria will do well against certain comp- competitors, but not others. And so because it's got all these little holes in it, there are all these different diverse places. And so a sponge turns out to be just ideal for bacteria. So now... now- what about those folks? Like, I have one of those sponges. It's got a rough edge that we wipe the pots with. We keep it in the sink. We don't wipe the counters with it, but we put soap on it to wipe the dishes. Same thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the big thing is to just keep the dangerous bacteria away. So, like, anytime you're cutting raw chicken in your kitchen or something like that, you know, you just treat that like a hazmat area where you just need to, like, isolate I'm, I'm it. I'm freakish it. about the raw chicken oh. stitch. I'm so scared of raw chicken. It freaks me right out. Anytime, like, once the package gets breached, like, it goes into a code three in my kitchen. Yeah, like, me too. Right uh, and then dads are, I'm crazy. My wife's like, would you relax? Now, she's a vegetarian. I'm like, would you relax? I'm like, look, raw chicken, man. Yeah. You, you know, when careful. I was in Japan, they served raw chicken. I had chicken sashimi shows up at the table, and I flipped my lid. I, there was no way I was going to touch that. Not in a hundred years. It Is that right? right see, see, if it's from Japan, I kind of am, I do it. <laughs> they, they say, because, you know, they're, they're the masters of the raw. Okay, so, so what do we do for wiping the, wiping the counter? Like, the same would be for a rag as well. You know, that little dish. You know how people have a dish rag? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I think the idea is so so keep the dangerous like meat bacteria away from everything else for sure. And then, you know, if you're using soaps, that breaks things down for sure. But just be mindful of the fact that that thing you're using to scour all the stuff off your dishes when you're doing the dishes just has a lot of bacteria in it. So these authors suggest that maybe you want to use a brush instead of a, a, a sponge and that, you know, maybe the sponge shouldn't be the last thing to touch your counters before you clean them up. Here, here's my thing. And I, I, this is why my wife gets mad at me. Speaking of Dan Riskin here, I say, guys, paper towel. Mm-hmm. And then it's wasteful. It's what it I is. don't care. Yeah, well, I hear you. I mean, it's it's a double-edged sword, right? I mean, it's wasteful. Sometimes you you generate waste when you're trying to be clean, and yeah. it's very wasteful to get sick. That's that because you think about like if you get very sick, there's a lot of medical stuff oh, that gets like involved. That. So if you have to go to the hospital, that uses a lot of waste. So you know, just don't get food poisoning. It's wasteful to get sick is my new one. Okay, I'll be trotting. I'll be pulling that out tonight <laughs> after dinner. It's wasteful to get sick. Okay, a puddle is eleven. 
I'm not yes. saying anything, but she's a big dog. And Oliver, the cat, is about 10. Mm. Uh, tell me about cloning your pets. There's a, a woman in BC who is uh, very excited because she's going to clone her cat. And uh, this is very, th- there's, a, there's a, a story that everyone needs to know about. Before, if you're ever thinking about cloning your animal, you need to know the story of the Brahmin bull named Chance. And this was, it was actually an episode of, uh, of an NPR documentary, but it's just, it's the most amazing thing in the world because there was this bull in Texas and a Brahmin bull is like a huge animal that can kill anyone. And it was the gentlest bull in the whole wide world. And when it died, the owners loved it so much, they wanted to get it cloned. So the researchers at Texas A&M cloned Chance the bull and made Second Chance, which is a great name. And then when this thing grew up, it gored the owner and like ripped his oh. genitals apart with its horns. Like it be, it was extremely violent. And it's just proof that you may have the exact same DNA, but you can come up with a totally different personality. Just like if you have identical twins that are born there, basically that's what right. a clone is. It's an identical twin born at a different time. So if you're thinking about cloning your animal, that's nice for nostalgia's sake, but just don't expect to get the same animal. So is this the real thing? Are people going to clone their pets? Like it costs 35 grand American. Yeah. Oh, man, people will spend, like, honestly, if you're trying to make money in the biotech industry, people who want to clone their pets, that's yeah. like, that's just easy money, I, right? So, I, have, I have a question for you on that. Okay? Yeah. If I can get, do I have time for this? Like, when your dog gets old, you know you'll do, you love your dog, I got a minute sure. here, but how much will you spend after the dog, a big dog's 11? You know, because that's when the bills pile up. Is yeah. there, should you put a cap on it and just... Or is it, and I know this is controversial, folks, or yeah, is yeah. it spend everything? But, no, this I is don't a, This is a everything. lively discussion in our house right yeah. now. This is, well, l- listen, those are hard conversations to have. And I will say that for me, I don't know if there's a number I can pull out, but I can say that when, it, when I had Elliot, who died earlier this year, he was a Boston Terrier, great dog. Um, he, you know, he got old and he, yeah. he was, it was time and he, he passed away. And I, I did some math about what I would do when he was just my dog. But now that I have kids, yes. the math changes because I'm willing to spend a certain <sighs> amount to make myself stay happy. But when it comes to my kids, like I'll spend a lot more money to avoid them being yeah, sad. Yeah. So that changes everything. Yeah. Elliot, I'm sorry. Rest in peace, Elliot. Uh, that is uh, Dan Riskin. Nick, our call screener, says the great Riskin. I'll think about it. Ooh, that. I like uh, that. 710 10. I'll see you on PowerPoint tonight. Thanks, Dan.